Can everybody hear me? All right. If everybody wants to find a seat, we're going to get started here. We've got a whole bunch to cover. So. Now, if you did not receive a paper, um, Kristen, my wife, is back there handing them out. Or you can pull it up on your phone if you'd like. We, uh, we're going to be going through, or we're going to get to the point where we're going to be going through quickly, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, uh, which is entitled, Of the Law of God. So that's going to be our main focus today. What do we do with the law of God as Christians? What do we do with the law of God as Christians? Let me get a drink real fast. I made biscuits this morning before we left the house, and we left about 10, 15 minutes later than we normally do, so I'm in a little bit of a rush. <clears throat> All right. So if you weren't here last week, we are going to be studying social justice for the next uh, 13 weeks now. We have 14 starting last week, and this is the book that the elders have chosen to go through. It's, called, it's a book by Thaddeus J. Williams. The title is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. And if I'm not mistaken, there are copies of this out in the bookstore. Okay, well, they sold out. But this is still available on Amazon if you wish to pick it up there. And also you can listen to it on Audible. Okay, so pick up a copy of this book. I've tried to give a couple weeks notice so that you have time to get the book and catch up. So we're doing these two introductory lessons in order for that to be the case. So today we are going to be talking about the law of God. Let me pray for us and then we're going to get started here. Does everyone have a copy of that paper near them uh, on the chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession? We're going to actually read all of those paragraphs today. So you're going to listen to me talk quite a bit. But I am going to try to ask some questions and hopefully give you guys some relevant examples as to how this applies to social justice, um, how this applies to Christians in general. Uh, this is a huge deficit in the church, in my opinion, is uh, an understand, a correct understanding of the law of God. So let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come together today. I praise you, God, for your law. Lord, help me to trust believe and apply your law to my life God I pray that for us as a church um, I pray that we would use it properly in the way that you have called us to in your word I pray that as we study this today we would see its relevance to our culture not only to our lives but to our church also and then further out to the culture and the world God as uh, you've given us a standard of justice and righteousness that we must understand and must adhere to if we are to have an answer to the things of satan god the things that the world pushes on us as the church thanks be to jesus that he has purchased through his obedience to the law um, righteousness on our behalf for those who believe god i pray uh, just for us today that we would have open hearts and open minds as we come to your word lord uh, give us something today lord we ask it we beg it that you would help us, help us, help us in our weakness, God, and understand your word better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So first, let's do a quick summary of last week. If you guys want to open to Psalm 119 for me, that's where we're going to start today while we're doing that. Who can offer me a quick summary of last week? Who can offer me a quick summary of last week? What did we talk about last week? We had a big term that started with a P, and then we attempted to define what those things were in our lives. What was the term that we used last week that started with a P? Presuppositions. And the analogy that we used to talk about presuppositions was the um, rose-colored glasses. You've all heard the term, or most of you at least have heard the term rose-colored glasses. And I gave the illustration of someone held up a piece of paper in front of you, and you had one person had a pair of rose-colored glasses, one person had a pair of clear glasses, and the other person had a uh, pair of blue glasses. You, you could ask yourself if 
for those of us who had no glasses on, which person could objectively identify the correct color of the paper? Okay, those lenses that you put on are your presuppositions. And I made the case last week that I wanted our presuppositions to be the scriptures. Why? Because they're necessary for our salvation. They have authority because they are from God as creator. Therefore, everything that he speaks of in his word, anything he defines as true and untrue, has binding authority on every creature and on all of creation. Okay? And then the third thing that we talked about, which I said was the biggest, at least within evangelicalism, standard everyday evangelicalism, which, which was the biggest aspect of Scripture, which the church had failed in, is the sufficiency of Scripture. Too often we want to look to psychology. Too often we want to look to this teacher, this guru, about whatever it might be. Understanding the nature of sexuality, understanding the nature of fear, depression, and anxiety. We must first look to God's word because it speaks to those things and it is absolutely sufficient to provide answers and the ability through the Holy Spirit to live a godly life under those things. Right? That's what we talked about last week. So this week, this week, we're going to move to two more principles that build off of those things. The first one might even assume those aspects of Scripture, but I'm, I'm going to use them as a building block. Now, you're going to have to bear with me here. It is going to be, in a way, like standing in front of a fire hose this morning, okay? Because we need to, from the foundation up, get an understanding of the law of God. So the first principle that I want to talk about today is tota scriptura. Tota scriptura, T-O-T-A scriptura. How many of you have heard of sola scriptura? Okay, Somebody give me a definition of sola scriptura. I saw a lot of hands. So. Scripture alone. Scripture alone in reference to what? That's right. It is scripture alone, but scripture alone in reference to what? Authority. Okay. Authority in what realm? Salvation. So... Sola Scriptura, in the definition and era that it was given, okay, where it was defined, was given, remember, by who? The Reformers in response to who? The Roman Catholic Church, right? So the, the meaning of Sola Scriptura is that it is meant to be, it's meant to convey as a definition of itself, that Scripture alone is to determine the faith and practice of the church, of the church, okay? Sola Scriptura. That's what that specific instance was mentioned in. Where did I lay my... Did I lay my clipboard back there? Let me have that real quick. I got two sheets of paper on there. Sorry for the little interruption here. Thank you. I left them back there when I grabbed my water. All right. So Sola Scriptura. Now, Tota Scriptura. I'm going to give you guys a definition real quick. Tota Scriptura. Tota Scriptura is a Latin phrase which means scripture wholly or every part of scripture. Whole is in the whole like a whole pie. Some Christians use this for use the phrase to contend that all of the Bible is as inspired by God as some of the Bible. In other words, the entire thing, all 66 books, every word is from God. Nothing should be omitted. This is also called pl the plenary inspiration of the Bible. Tota Scriptura is a bit different from Sola Scriptura, and this came from compellingtruth.org. I thought it was a real simple definition for us to use. It is a bit different from Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura claims that the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice, separate from any other historical, religious, or philosophical writings. In other words, the Pope in his chair cannot add to Scripture. He cannot dictate how we worship. Okay, that's what, that's what it's talking about there when it's termed. Sola Scriptura speaks to the Bible being the only inspired word of God. It also claims the Bible is complete and therefore prohibits any addition to the Bible. Tota Scriptura emphasizes that the entire Bible is God's word and to be taken as a whole. Whereas Sola Scriptura keeps 
people from adding to the Bible. Toda Scriptura keeps people from subtracting from the Bible. Subtracting from the Bible. Okay? I'll come back to that in a little bit. Psalm 119. I'm going to read 1 through 32. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statues. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, O oh, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold, your, behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your testimonies, on your statues. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Last section here. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put away false ways from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Amen. So this could be read as one continuous prayer, right? This could be read as one continuous plea before God. So let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about this for a minute. What is the main idea that you think the psalmist is trying to portray or help us see here? What's the main thing that the psalmist is getting at? There's one thread kind of running through here, and it's a pretty easy one to spot. Which one do you think it is? What is the thread that he's trying to get us to see? He wants us to understand the law. He wants us to run where? Run where? At all times. To God's word, right? But what specifically is the psalmist referring to here? The law of God. Rules, statues, commandments very easy for us to run to the word of God to look for comfort when we're downtrodden and those sorts of things, but do we derive comfort from the commandments as they correct us? Do we derive comfort from the commandments as they correct us? Just look here. What's the main idea? If I could pick one verse out of this, uh, out of these 32 verses, it's verse 9. How can you, a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. This is what the psalmist is longing for. And what word is he looking to for that? The law of God. In other words, the Old Testament. Right? The Old Testament. The Old Testament law. What do we do with it as Christians? I feel like in the last two years, I've grown so much 
as I've grown to understand the law of God and how it applies to the life of Christians. And that's why we're going to talk about chapter 19 today, because without the Old Testament being in play, we cannot address social justice. We cannot address social justice. God gives us moral and judicial principles, okay, which give us reason to oppose the things that social justice stands for. And we're going to try to understand a little bit of how that works today. How that works today. So, have we ever seen uh, Christ answer anything according to this? Does he give us an example of this? He does. Matthew chapter 4 in his wilderness temptation. Matthew chapter 4 in his wilderness temptation. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. What did Satan tempt him with? Bread. What was his response? Man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What word was he referring to? The Old Testament law. I would contend with you that the church at large today, and us included in that, struggle mightily with understanding the word of God in this way. Struggle mightily with applying the law of God to our hearts. Being able to say with the psalmist, when we read things that are hard in the Old Testament, that we rejoice in your law and in your commandments, which include things like stoning. Okay? There are judicial penalties attached to these actions in the Old Testament. How do you come, uh, how do you come to the place where you can love the law of God? Now, that doesn't mean, just so you don't take me the wrong way, that God in any way rejoices in the death of the wicked. He plainly says he does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but he does rejoice in his justice, in his justice. He doesn't rejoice in man-made justice. He rejoices in his justice, okay? So we need to keep that in mind as we go through this. All right, so definition. Remember, I'm going to read it again quickly here. Toda Scriptura emphasizes that the entire Bible is God's word and to be taken as a whole. Whereas sola scriptura keeps people from adding to the Bible, toda scriptura keeps people from subtracting from the Bible. So what, why are we in this place? I'm making a contention here that the church at large does not look at the law of God with favor Rather, it looks at it in a few ways. And these are the things that I'm going to say. Three reasons why our hearts don't run to the law of God the way the psalmist did in Psalm 119. And remember, I'm going fast here. So if you have questions, you can stop me. But I'm going to continue to try to press through because we have a lot of material to cover. Three reasons. Number one, lack of preaching in the evangelical church. Shepherds don't go to the law of God to teach the sheep. Number one. Number one. How hard is it to go to, a ch a ch I think it's chapter 21 in Deuteronomy where it says to stone an unfaithful and disobedient son. Could you, would you know what to do with that if someone confronted you with it? Okay? Without preaching in the word of God, we wouldn't know how to use the word of God. Do we continue that penalty today? Do we not? These are questions that we should ask, right? If God's law is a binding thing on all people and at all times, then what do we do with that? I'm not, by the way, saying that we absolutely should. We'll get to all of that later. I'm just going to bring up the questions, okay? These are questions that we should be asking. The second thing, ignorance of the flock. That's related to, that's related to, okay, the preaching that does not take place on the law of God, okay? That does not at large take place on the uh, uh, <clears throat> does not take place at large in the church regarding the law of God, so that they don't have any idea what the right use of the law is. So there's a right use of the law and a wrong use of the law. That has to be the case, otherwise we cannot say, along with the psalmist in one nineteen, that we love his law, right? There are certain ways to love it and hold it up, and then there are ways to wrongly use it, okay, and come under condemnation. So what are those? The right use of the law, we're going to read about in, in uh, chapter 19 in the Confession. The wrong use of the law is the way that the Pharisees used it. 
the Pharisees used it as a means of justification. The law, and we're going to talk about this as I read through the confession, was not, hear me say this, was never, after the fall, given as a means to life. Never. Galatians 3 flatly denies that. Okay? Was never given as a means to life. Go read Galatians 3.21 if you don't think that's an accurate portrayal. In other words, the Judaizers, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees of the Jews, took the law and made it something after the fall it was never meant to be. And that, taking that principle that was applied to Adam before the fall as a covenant of works, and now applying it to the whole church has caused all kinds of confusion about how we should look at the law of God. Okay? It was never meant that way afterward. All right. So, any questions so far? I know I'm going fast. The third thing, and I kind of hinted at this, the third reason. So we've got lack of preaching, ignorance of the flock, and I would even say covenantal ignorance. Covenantal ignorance, the structure of the Bible, okay, plays into this, but that's another, another time. The last one, <clears throat> the last one is I feel like the most common one because it's constantly hoisted on us from the culture, and that is we are functional Marcionites. What does that mean? Well, Marcion was a heretic who wanted to cut out parts of the Bible that he felt like portrayed God as a monster or morally corrupt. There's even a book, a modern book that's written, I haven't read it, but it's by a man named Paul Copan, Is God a Moral Monster? So we can include things in the Old Testament that are difficult for us to understand in a way, Right? What about when God commands Israel to totally extinguish the Amorites? Men, women, and children. Do you want to cut that out of your Bible? Does it repulse you that God would do that? Or does the idea of death and destruction make you have fear and reverence toward God? Because that's what everyone deserves who doesn't repent and believe. We are functional Marcionites. I have this in my own heart at times. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers without pointing some back at me. Sometimes these things are difficult to understand. But remember, God does not revel in the death of the wicked, but he rejoices in his justice, which the wicked deserve. Okay? All right. Any questions so far? That's tota scriptura. I want us to get the idea that the Old Testament is relevant to the Christian life. Okay, now how is it relevant? How is it relevant? I mean, if we, if we can read Psalm 119 devotionally as Christians, if we can say along with the psalmist, this is what we want, then that means it has to apply to our lives as well. Well, the question then becomes how. How do you apply it? Well, to understand that correctly, we need to read this chapter of the Confession, which I gave you. Any questions so far? I know I'm going fast here. If you have questions afterward, feel free to ask me. And I'm going to cut. The great thing about this chapter is it kind of follows in line exactly what I was trying to say a little bit ago. All right. Paragraph 1, and normally I would have people read this. I think I said this last lesson, but given the nature of this, where I want people to be able to hear it, I'm just going to read it, okay? So follow along with me. <clears throat> Chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, starting in section 1. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all of his posterity. Him and all of his posterity. There has never been a human being born in the history of creation that has not functioned under a covenant of works. Never. The difference is Adam being created perfectly and us after the fall. And that's where we're going to talk about this, okay? It says, He bound him and all of his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling to Adam, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. Okay? Now we know that Adam fell, right? He disobeyed God, and he failed the covenant of works, and we have all inherited his nature from that. This law, 
section 2. After his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, not in the same way with the same intent of life given to Adam, because we are now talking about post-fall, but only as condemnation and a tutor, which is what Galatians 3 talks about, okay? But it continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. Section 3. Besides, beside this law, commonly called moral, there's one of our distinctions. We have three distinctions within the law. We're going to see them all in the next two paragraphs. First one's moral, Ten Commandments. Okay? God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church under age, under age, non-mature, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Now notice that word abrogated. That means completely done away with, extinguished. Okay? Extinguished. What are ceremonial laws? Blood of bulls and goats. Just read the book of Hebrews. Okay, read the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10. Those are done away with. Now, next paragraph. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws. There's our third one. So we have moral, ceremonial, and judicial. Moral, ceremonial, and judicial Okay, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together. Notice the difference in the word, a good brother pointed this out. The difference in the word between, of abrogated versus expired between the, those two paragraphs. Judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than, and this is the last phrase we're going to focus on here, gen, the general equity thereof may require. Section 5. The moral law does bind, does forever bind all, all people, non-believers as well. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, does forever bind all people, as well as justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. So therefore, what I mean by saying every person remains under a co covenant of works and are under a covenant of works when they are born, what, what, you mean, what I mean by that is that every person without Christ remains under the curse of the covenant of works with Adam, their father. Every person in Christ has the covenant of works fulfilled on their behalf by Christ. Okay? So that's what we mean by that. But that does not negate the fact that every person under God's creation is under a covenant of works and under the condemnation that Adam bought for us all if they refuse to repent and believe in Jesus. Okay? All right. Be not under the law as a, I'm sorry, does bind us as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in the respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Okay? Much strengthen this obligation. It is not dissolved. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to thereby be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that, as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Further down, it says it restrains their corruptions. I'm going to speed up just a little bit. You can read the rest of it. It's, it tells us what our sins deserve and what afflictions in this life we may, ex we may expect for our sins, though we are free from the curse of the law if we've believed, the eternal curse. And it says in the last part there, So a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under law and not under grace. And then the last one here, Neither 
are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary, that means not opposed to, to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. And there's a whole list of scriptures under there. Whole list of scriptures under these. I included them all so that you guys could go back there. I copied them. I went through and I superscripted them all because I could not find one that didn't include all the actual full citations of the scriptures. So please take the time to take this home and read that. So that's an overview of the law right there. I gave you a quick thought. So what does general equity mean? That's where we're going to focus. General equity. Because that's really relevant to us in terms of the social justice thing. So we have three aspects of the law. One abrogated, one expired, except as the general equity may entail, and one of them is perpetual, eternal, because it is the very nature of God, that being the moral law. Okay. So what we're going to ask ourselves is... According to, the general, uh, according to the judicial laws, what is the general equity of them? What is the general equity of them? Do we exercise any general equity of some of the judicial principles that were found in Israel at that time that God gave them? Do we see that today in our own society? I'm going to say that we do. So first thing I'm going to have you guys do is flip to 1 Corinthians 9, because I want you to see this principle in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Does the Scripture teach the general equity of the law? Does the Scripture? Because it's useless for me to stand up here and tell you these things if I can't show you that concept from the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Now, this passage is talking about giving and paying those in the ministry, okay? Just as a little bit of context. Now, I want us to pay particular attention to how Paul uses the Old Testament here. There's something that we can glean from this, right? This is what Paul felt free to do, all right? Do I say these things, starting in verse 8, on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written... In the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, for the oxen, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? So we're going from animals to humans. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? I'm going to read further here. I said through 10, but I meant through 14. Nevertheless, we have not made use of, the, of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So how do we get from an animal sharing in its work to a minister being paid? To a minister being paid. What principle could we look to? I'm going to give you a, general, a definition of the general equity, okay, before I... Uh, get too much further here. General equity. General equi equity with the respect to the judicial laws of Moses means the universally applicable and binding moral principles that adhere therein. In its historical and theological context, general equity was contrasted with particular equity. Clearly, the term general equity was not so technical that it was hard to be understood. It conveyed the broad, common-sense meaning that theologians were all using various language to get at. The fundamental, moral, and natural principles contained in the Mosaic judicials that applied universally to all men and societies. Reform Books Online is where it gave me some, some of these quotes. Um, 
William Perkins, who's considered the father of Puritanism, he was an Anglican, not a Presbyterian, but nevertheless considered the father of Puritanism, he says this in his Discourse of Conscience, which is in volume 8 of his collected works, which I have at my house. I looked the quote up just to make sure it was correct. Therefore, the judicial laws of Moses, according to the substance and scope thereof, must be distinguished in which respects they are of two sorts. Some of, the law, some of them are laws of particular equity, and some of them are of common, which means general equity. Laws of particular equity are such as prescribe justice according to the particular estate and conditions of the Jews' commonwealth, and to be circumstances there of time, place, persons, things, and actions. So there are, there are certain husbandry laws and things like that that applied specifically to the Jews, but they don't necessarily apply to us today. But there are principles under some of those laws which we could use to derive meaning from today because that is exactly what Paul is pointing out here. So remember we said that the moral law was the Ten Commandments. So if we're talking about wages, and it seems to me that we're talking here about wages earned, if, I did not, if, if someone was working for me and I knew what the value of their wages were, or their, their efforts were, I'm sorry, and I failed to pay them the correct wage, what commandment might I be breaking of the moral law? Think the Ten Commandments here. Thou shalt not steal, or you shall not steal. I would be guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. Okay? So whenever we look at the law in the Old Testament, what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves, is this judicial law an application of the moral law of God, and how might it apply today? Because remember, the moral law binds the consciences of all men because all men are under a covenant of works. Every person born as a son and daughter of Adam is under that covenant. Therefore, you can appeal to those things to them just as much as you can to the Christian. Now, I'm not saying you should expect the same submission and results, Okay, that you would from a Christian. But this is how we rightly use the law. We never use the law to reinstitute ceremonial aspects that pull away from the glory and majesty and complete work of Christ. But we can use the moral law to call people to repentance and to hold accountable governors or whoever else it might be that fly in the face of what God makes plain to all men. That is that they must obey him. Okay? They must obey him. So what might be an example today? Let's think of that. I know I'm flying here, okay? Stay with me. If you have questions, write them down. I'm always I'll even give out my email. People want to email me. I don't that's fine. We can talk on the phone, we can do whatever. <clears throat> so the eighth commandment, right? So let's talk about the eighth commandment a little bit more. How would we apply this to our government? Do we expect those same things? Do we expect those same things? I just want to show you how this might apply to social justice, okay? Might apply to social justice. How many of you are aware of the big spending bills that we've been passing lately? Hundreds of trillions of billions of dollars, right? Hundreds of trillions of billions of dollars that we're in debt currently. Okay, well, what does that do? Let's think about that for a minute. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to try to illustrate this for you and talk. This is how, and I'm not perfect in this, so please don't uh, think that I'm going to come up with every single verse or every single concept that needs to be come up with as we go over this for the next several weeks. But I want you guys to think about it in this way, and I'm trying to give you an ability to understand it. Isaiah 21 and uh, chapter 1, 21 and 22 says, How faithful... How the faithful city, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Now notice the next verse. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And what does he include in that same context? Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. What is dross and silver? Does anybody know what that is? impurities. So what does God hate? Unequal weights and measures. What does he therefore loathe? The watering down of currency, the watering down of the value of things. Do you see that? 
So, so let's, let's take, for instance, what, what we've done here. Now, when the government prints money, if you've got, let's say I've got $10, okay, and there are $100 in the whole world, I have 10% of the wealth in the world at that point. Is that correct? Let's assume that. Now, what happens if the government decides to print another $900, increasing the wealth of the whole world, so to speak? Does that increase the value of my money or decrease the value of my money? It decreases my wealth. That's dross. That's watering down. The government, when it does that, is stealing. And what do you, what do you get from that? They're breaking the Eighth Commandment. What is the evidence of that? How much do you pay for a gallon of gas and a three-pound thing of hamburger at the store now as opposed to two years ago? This is why. This is why. Do you guys see that? So the principle of the Eighth Commandment is binding on government. They are not allowed to steal. Socialism is the same thing. Socialism is the same thing. The, the, the Bible nowhere permits the government to take in order to redistribute. That breaks the Eighth Commandment. That breaks thou shalt not covet because the whole thing is based on envy. Okay? I'm not up here to just preach against the government, but we're talking about social justice here, right? Justice, what, is that, what does that curtail or entail? That entails law, does it not? So that when we talk about the, the judicial law being of general equity use, we mean that the government, because they are under God and function as a minister of good and evil, according to Romans 13, is accountable to the Ten Commandments and how they apply laws and create laws in every nation. They are men. All men are under God. All men sit under his authority. All men, no matter what position they are in, are required to submit to that authority. So where do we run? Okay, where do we run? It doesn't mean we run to the law for justification. It does not mean we run to the law for justification. It does not mean that you just consistently preaching the law to people is going to suddenly change society because the law was not meant to change hearts. The grace of God changes hearts through the application of the law. Okay? But think about, think about, pray through, what does God's word say about how Christians should be affectionate toward his law? What does it say? Is that true of you? We cannot expect a just society if we are uncomfortable with, are ignorant of, and do not hold ourselves accountable to those things that God has in his word, including his law. It is a benefit to us. We read Psalm 119 earlier. You cannot say along with David or whomever wrote that psalm that it is our goodness, our correction, it is lovely to us if you look at the law in an opposite way. You cannot expect of the culture what you do not expect and apply of yourself. Okay? So the test of good and evil, then, of just and unjust, is God's word, period. It is the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments applied. And those Ten Commandments applied. How do we know? This is another question to consider for another time. When we talk about punishment, this is just to help you think about that, okay? To help you grow more comfortable with God's word. How do you know what a just punishment even is? How do you know what's a correct too much or too little for stealing? Too much or too little for lying? Too much or too little for this? Too much or too little for that? Is the death penalty just in the case of a homosexual? Well, how do you know? Again, I'm not saying we should glory in the death of people, but I am asking you to question yourself, and I think God's word would require that you question yourself on how you look at his law. Can you rejoice in his justice while at the same time taking no pleasure but being heartbroken over those who die in unbelief? Can you do that? I think that the biblical examples that we have show us that we should and can. 
Think about the covenant case that God pressed against Israel. His covenant people and what happened to them in 70 AD because they broke his law in unbelief. According to Hebrews 3 and 4, they were in unbelief in the wilderness and all of them died there. 1 Corinthians 10 says the same thing. They're there for our examples that we might not do that. What did they have available to them? God's law. What did they break? God's law. But why did they break it? Because they looked at it in unbelief. Our belief should lead us to the psalmist. Our belief should carry us into God's word with hope, with love, with desire, as it being the only thing that could sustain us as Christians. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19 with me, and we're going to end here. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16 in this. I had this written down, but I didn't mention it because I speak of it so often. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, for training, for reproof, for, uh, and, uh, for teaching. In all the ways of righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Well, at that time, in that context, as he's writing to Timothy, he's just come off explaining to Timothy, remember what you the sacred writings that you were acquainted with. Well, that would have been the book of the law. Okay? That would have been the prophets. And what they said. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. Believe that and apply that and think through this. Think through this. This is our only answer to social justice. God's word. Otherwise, all of our ramblings are just as incoherent as theirs. Okay? What does it say? Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Do not be ashamed of God's word. Love it, cherish it, run to it. Ask yourself tough questions and how to apply it to your life. You cannot question it. It's perfect. But you can ask yourself questions about how does this look? What does it look like in my life? If Paul can take a law about animal husbandry and apply it to real, the wages that a minister earns, we can follow his example be careful, consult those in leadership over you as you think through these things, okay? But do not forsake it. Do not forsake it, because you will be left with no answer to the social justice movement. You cannot answer socialism, gender inequity, all these supposed injustices that they say that they suffer without that. Now, we will also cover some of the, the, the idols of the right in some of these things. So don't think I'm just landing on the left here. We can talk about just punishment of imprisoning someone like an animal for 20 years over stealing and how the Bible actually talks about that. Okay? So there are lots of things that we're going to hit on, Lord willing, in this class. And I'm going to take the themes of those chapters that are coming forth and uh, try to take some some promises from scripture and try to think about how we can deal with those through the lens of scripture okay all right it's 20 after does anyone have a quick question if not then i'm going to close this in prayer